you play this podcast from the beginning, then you're playing it wrong. Welcome to Playing It Wrong. Podcasts about RPGs, fun, food, more RPGs. Grab your dice, sit back, and get ready to play it wrong. Uh, welcome to episode 9. No, it's not episode 9, it's episode 10. I can't count. Crap. Alright, what do we got going this time? Let's end the news, end the news, end the news. Well, it's not really news, but hey, guess what? Only a few days left in the Swords and Wizardry Limited box set Kickstarter. I backed it. I love it. And I got no uh, bucks in this hunt other than I'm a backer. But hey, link is going to be in the show notes. It's a fun little game. I've yacked about it before. I'm going to yak about it again. I'm going to write for it again. And speaking of write for it again, I have got to get issue number three of the Gazebo Gazette done, which is my own little fanzine. Well, easy in four swords and wizardry. That's got to get done next month because I give free copies of that out to Patreon patrons on my Patreon, which is you know Patreon.com forward slash They Might Be Gazebos. So there was your little bit of self promotion there. What else is coming up? Hey, March fourth. Remember, it's GM's Day. Be nice to your GM. Ride the plot train. Don't rules lawyer. Maybe bring them a stack. Maybe give them some dice that don't roll so high. Just be nice to your GM. All right, remember, March 4th, and that's when the Kickstarter ends, too. And, oh, what do we else have? Oh, wait, we have a voicemail from last episode from none other than Tim Gothridge Managed Shorts. It rubs the lotion on its skin <clears throat> like it's told or it gets the hose again. So, yes, I know that quote very well. And, Chuck, uh, Fantasy Heartbreakers, I've been working, well, I work on one on and off for years always get into it, never finish it. I, I, mine is, I, what I probably would do is more like a, one that's kind of use a system, but uh, tailor make the classes to a, my particular campaign and go that way instead of trying to come up with a whole new rule set, but who knows? I got like 10 of them. <laughs> who knows? So Chuck's join the show and, uh, yeah, I can't. I'm looking forward to the Swords and Wizard Appreciation Day. It looks like it got pushed back to March sometime uh, from what I read on Tankar. So, thank you, everybody. And yes, Swords and Wizardry Appreciation Day did get moved back till middle of March. Last I knew it was March 14th is now when it's going to happen. So, that gives me more time to get my little blog post done. I've got one done. I just got to get the other one done. Yes, two planned for Swords and Wizardry Appreciation Day on March 14th. And speaking of which, you did a really good job of doing a segue for this episode, too, Tim. Thank you very much. Because you were talking about your fantasy heartbreaker and making this classes for the setting. I've been thinking the last weeks or so because I'm doing my kind of what to play next type thing. And it got me thinking about setting versus genre. Not necessarily setting versus genre, but setting and genre. So... If you're like me and you're crazy and you homebrew your setting and you do all this work, but you want to play a different genre, why not just turn some knobs on that setting and then flip it around a little bit? Now, this has been kind of tried a few times with good old D&D, with you know, Ravenloft as the gothic horror setting, and more recently, the Secrets of Saltmarsh wizards tried to make it piratey, but really... Just they added ships to regular D and D, and Ravenloft just, well, just gave you a really possible to beat vampire. But, I mean, there were elements there, but it didn't feel horrorish because 
there was no tweaking of the underlying game system. Not enough tweaking, in my opinion, I'll say that. But, for example, for stuff I've done for, for my home games, I have a setting. It's called New Bay City. It's a modern setting. I've used it for urban fantasy. You get to play an emo vampire, but one quick turn of a knob, and you're now monster hunting's, hunting's, hunters hunting a monstrous vampire. So, like in the case of good old Ravenloft, it's not so much rules overall tweaking that will do the job, because well, it'll need some, but also some class tweaking, like uh, Tim mentioned in doing the Fantasy Heartbreaker, of making the classes for the setting, and that's where it all begins. If you remember way back on uh, the early episodes, and that was my joke at the beginning about playing the podcast from the beginning, by the way, because the early episodes had some really shitty audio and some technical problems, and sometimes I use my phone that has a really crappy microphone, and I would talk too fast, like I still do, but anyway... I'm getting better at this podcast thing. Now, back to my subject. See, I rambled, and I'm not supposed to do that things. That we make the changes to the classes and a few of the underlying rules. Because let's face it, D&D, zombies and skeletons. All right, zombies and skeletons. First level monster, let's go kill them. Big deal. There's no horror. There's no fear. But you can do that with just a few simple rules and tweaks of also the monsters making those zombies a little more harder to kill or more of a problem to worry about you know do fast infectious zombies and watch that dmd party change uh sort of nerf clerics a bit i'm gonna turn undead no you're not you know and also i'm bouncing around here because i'm tongue-tied um that you've got other genres that'll influence like there's a big uh, sword noir which is really hard to say of you know inspired by the film noir but set in a fantasy setting think about that I mean, a lot of times the genre is, you know, a lot of times is tone and, well, not only the tone of what characters, what the characters, what the players are playing, but also what the rules kind of reinforce and kind of reward you for, or the rules exist for special things, because there's not a lot of, like, say, political intrigue rules in D&D, you just got to RP it all out. But there's a little more stuff in, in other games. Another thing, a trick I was thinking of the other day, of have them start off with what they think is a normal campaign and throw horror on it. Yeah, I, I kind of am talking about horror, I know, because I'm looking at lots of Call of Cthulhu stuff. It'd be fun to go ahead and say, all right, we're doing this type of campaign, like, say, Pirates or Cowboys or even Cyberpunk, and not tell them until they run across their first monster that it's a horror campaign. That may sound like an evil Game Master trick to do, but it puts, you know, it puts some horror out there because they're not been maxing their characters for that uh, eventuality. And that makes it all the more horror-like. It's just my opinion. So to my original point of taking the setting that you've already written and then, you know, just turning whatever knobs you need to to make the campaign you're going to run into that setting fit the genre or subgenre that you want to do. You can do the same... I have ran my good old Zoom, which is my kind of standard fantasy world with uh, Swords and Wizardry, Advanced Labyrinth Lore, Dungeon Crawl Classics, and 5e. Same setting. The players like it because they, they know some stuff. They know where the major cities are, like someone who was actually living there would know. So there's some player knowledge that's already there that would also be character knowledge. And it's kind of homey, and I never tell them when in any timeline that they happen to be in based on the things that the other they've done in previous campaigns. 
but just the style of the game alone changes the whole, I guess I want to say genre and feel of it. But yes, you can do that. You can take your setting that you've got and twist it around, you know, your epic fantasy to sword and sorcery, dirt bags, just trying to eke out a living. Why? Because, well, your setting should be big, too. I like, you know, like I said very early on, paint broad brush strokes and don't paint yourself in a corner. But by the same token, have it be a big world. So there's lots of type of adventures the characters can do. If you want to like... Fantasy is a very broad term. And we all know that there's sword and sorcery. There's weird fantasy. There's all these other different types of fantasies. So you can put a twist and a feel on it to maybe emulate the genre you want. Maybe you want to play, like I said, a film noir type game. But nobody wants to do any gangster stuff. But you can put all the film noir stuff in a fantasy game. Just look up the tropes, figure a way to put them in there, and use your same setting. Save yourself some work. And that's what it boils down to. Save yourself some work. Save more time for rolling dice and having fun. All right, that's going to be about it for this rant. So guess what we need to do? We're getting up to that time for, well, let me just do the bumper this time because I haven't done it the last few times. Tomes of ancient forbidden knowledge. And here we go as we are still on reading of Supplement 2 Blackmore from original D&D. And we're going to get the kind of part that's kind of boring, so I'm going to kind of skip over lots of it until I see something that's interesting. If you remember last time, we finished up on Monsters and Treasures, and I turned the page, and what do we see? I think this is the first depiction of a Mind Flayer in D&D, and it looks like the artist is Tracy L. Lech. Lech, not Lech, Lech. Sorry, Tracy, if you're out there. But this moves us into the section of the Underworld and Wilderness Adventures, and it's an adventure. It's the Temple of the Frog. I am not going to sit here and read you an entire adventure, but I am going to scan through it and look for interesting stuff. So we start off with the background, and it kind of follows the structure of what uh, future adventures that came out. So we've got a background of a crazy priests doing a bunch of mutant killer frogs. You know, really, that's what it's about. And a schism in the church, and there's a neighboring town, and it's got the which are ran by the cultists of the frog god. <clears throat> and it's got walls, the city, and kitchens, blah 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 blah. We have the actual tower, the corner. Um, let's see, there's also have siege engines and catapults to protect themselves, which I suppose that's kind of a good thing if you get some high level um characters coming around. Um then we have the High Priest of the Temple of the Frog, which is a whole write-up. Which Let's see, let's, let's look at this a little bit. Okay, traditionally the role, High Priest, da -da, High Priest. Complete set of battle armor, a mobile medical kit, and a communications module. Which sounds more like... Um, we're getting, Yeah, there's kind of a bit of a science fantasy-like vibe in here, but let's go over his battle armor. And, an ordinary appearing suit of mail and Dallas wear with plus three on defense and saving throws. It enables a excuse me. It enables the wearer also to move at 12 inches per turn. It's like 120 feet or something like that. And there is no fatigue factor. Also, upon donning the armor, the wearer receives an 18 double lot strength and an 18 dexterity. It provides complete protection against all energy type weapons, including fireballs, lightning, cold, etc., and against charm, hypnosis. Draining life levels and any spells which act upon the wearer physically, polymorph, decay, etc. 
This armor puts the bear in instant communication with all of the ring wearers. There's some magic rings in here too. It also allows the user to fly and walk underneath water. Damage can only be inflicted through conventional attacks and it can take 60 points before it will cease to function. Lastly, it resists fire on the same basis as a ring of fire resistance. So the Thai Priest has power armor. Hey, it's original D&D. It's canon. He also has a sword plus three in combat. May fire up to six 20-point uh, lightning bolts per day. It can detect metal in the presence of any living being with 100 feet. It also has a 20% chance of opponent's weapons breaking when involved in melee. The sword, this sword being unbreakable. So there's a 20, adds a 20% chance. I don't know what the normal chance is. I don't remember reading that. But there, at least there's a 20% chance that it's going to break somebody else's weapon. And he has a shield, plus three in standard combat. It can cast a 10-foot ring of invisibility and provide a shield against all mental attacks, energy attacks, and magical and or clerical spells within the same 10-foot radius. The shield can be specifically set at the exclusion of other features to repel all spell attacks back on the caster. How the F are you going to beat this guy? Um, then we have a uh, <clears throat> medical kit. Short of completely being hacked to pieces or otherwise reduced to a jigsaw puzzle, the medical kit can put a creature back together better than before, one day of recovery per point of damage, repair with double that for death and revivification, so it can bring you back from the dead. It also has specific genetic modification for producing frogmen. So, yeah, this is a little bit of a science fantasy. We're getting into Arduin territory here, kids. Be careful. Look out for the mutant bats. Um, but this is seen. But this has since been disassembled. Can handle up to four patients at one time, and also produces vaccines for the prevention of communicable diseases. And inoculates per persons as fast as they can walk the patients through. It is a cube of approximately ten feet per side and very easily moved if its anti-gravity unit is turned on. And yes, it even has an anti-gravity unit. <coughs> Communications module: simply an interstellar radio. No, really, it, I, I'm not making this shit up. What? I know there's a long break here in silence. I, I'm, I'm waiting for you to process this for all the people who, who don't realize how much science fantasy was actually thrown into old D&D &D when you've got the communications model, an interstellar radio, but with the entertainment and instructional modules that can be used to enliven drab days of the high priest. It features a single seat surrounded by what seems to be an egg, which, when sealed, produces a self-contained environment. The armor, sword, shield, and metal kit will fit inside. Its distinctive feature is the ability to instantly teleport itself anywhere on the planet, and even to the scout craft. Wait, there's a scout craft? There's a spaceship in this too? I, I'm going to have to read this in more detail. It can carry only one person comfortably. But two may be squeezed in. It teleports by voice command as it's programmed for all languages and can also act as a translator. It can also be placed on automatic for further convenience. Okay. <laughs> I don't think this was in Lord of the Rings, dude. Um, then we got some magic rings. Let's see. What are the magic rings? Uh, controls killer frogs and frogmen. The keeper's rings control killer frogs and frogmen. The commander's ring... Um, gets you past doors, it looks like, and various stuff. The ground, the entrance, the rings in general. 
rooms. I'm going to go through here. Um, there's a giant's den with 58,000 gold pieces. Um, secret door. Uh, I, I, like I said, I'm just going to scan through this. Um, Secret police, secret, secret police, the secret priest's room, first level of the dungeon, let's see. Um, <laughs> like I said, I am only scanning through this for stuff that looks interesting. If I don't see anything interesting, I'm just skipping over it. So we're going page by page rather quickly. However, anything called the breeding pond definitely calls for more um, inspection. Okay, estimated 1,100 to 1,200 killer frogs. You take the 500 on the right. Um, we have armor class 8, take 3 hit points each. And they will give a hard time for any character. There's an island located in the breeding pond. It's the island of the frog people who have been bred by their new rulers of the Temple of Frog to supply more powerful forces which to subdue the world. <coughs> Same stats as Mermen, but only can be searched. Alright. Uh, breeding Pond. Uh, wow, it's a freaky looking map. Um, Chief Keeper. What is it with the Chief Keeper? Is He's got a Girdle of Frost Giant Strength. Gas. Potion of Gaseous Form. A, ma a map to a Staff of Withering. Two Potions of Water Breathing. And a Scroll of Polymorph. And then we're going to go into Underwater Adventures, which means... I am going to do that next episode. That means we're almost done with Blackmore. Yay! Well, not yay, but you know what I mean. It means we'll finish up Blackmore next episode, and after that, we're going to be moving on to Supplement 3, Eldritch Wizardry, by Gary Gygax and some guy and Brian Bloom, with special thanks to lots of people, which I'll read later on, but hey, we're going to run out of supplements pretty soon, folks, so i got to figure out what I'm going to do for tomes of ancient wizard after that so with that i'm going to bring this episode to a close and say thank you for listening hey bear with me i'm getting better at this the technical stuff is getting easier i just got to get my mouth and my mind working better and what else let's see stay tuned next month third episode third episode third issue of gazebo gazebo gazette we'll go out to patrons and go on a drive-through the should have another youtube video coming out next month it's not going to be a review it's going to do something crafty this time yeah 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 so hey if you like the the podcast or the blog go ahead visit me on patreon it's patreon.com forward slash they might be gazebos um if you listen on anchor we're monetized on anchor too um but you get a little more bells and whistles with the patreon and also, go ahead, like us on Facebook, follow the blog, theymightbegazebos.blog, and I mumbled that a bit, and I'm sorry. So with that, roll dice, kill monsters, take their stuff, and have fun, people. It's all about the fun. <laughs>